millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle, the producer of ReSound. Hey, if you count yourself among the true fans of public radio, or if you're just looking for something fun to do on a Sunday night, you should consider coming to our awards ceremony on the evening of October 7th. We'll be celebrating the best audio of the year with all kinds of public radio rock stars. There's going to be champagne and live music and all kinds of fun, fun stuff. Go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, for all the details and to buy tickets. All right, hope to see you there, and here's ReSound. Nick Drake just grabbed me by the throat. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I am Sunra, ambassador from the intergalactic regions of the Council of Outer Space. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and other audio oddities we find all over the world. On the air, on the internet, wherever people make sound, we listen. And then we bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Put plainly, great audio deserves to be heard. And here is where you'll hear it. I came from a dream that the black man dreams long ago. I'm actually a present sent to you by your ancestors. This music is all a part of another tomorrow. Another kind of language. Today, we invite you into the world of two great musicians through the portal of two great documentaries. These talented men came from different cultures, performed very different kinds of music, and had completely contrasting personalities, but both left big, bold marks on the sonic world. The stories of Nick Drake and Sun Ra, coming up on ReSound. Stay with us. Strange face with your eyes So pale and sincere British singer-songwriter Nick Drake was just 26 when he died from an overdose of antidepressants. He'd recorded three albums over the course of his lifetime, none of which sold very well, and he died in relative obscurity. But fast forward 40 years, and Nick Drake has been resurrected. He's now largely thought of as one of the most influential artists of his time, and he sold far more records than he ever did when he was living. 
In Three Records from Sundown, Charles Maines talks with Nick Drake's producer, Joe Boyd, who shares his fascination and frustration with the enigmatic musician. You know, one of the things that I've said a lot, but I'm not sure how much people understand it, really. I don't like singer-songwriters, generally. It's not what I choose to listen to. It's not my first option. You know, I grew up listening to roots music or to jazz or to, you know, music uh, by... (laughs) I don't want to exaggerate this, but, you know, music by real people by people from the earth, people who are not middle class, you know. And I don't, I've never, I don't think in history you look back, I don't think there's that many examples of the middle class inventing anything, you know, culturally. Um, so when I put on a tape and I hear, you know, well-educated white person strumming a guitar, you know, I'm looking at my watch and I'm saying, okay, I'll give this about another 15 seconds. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, unless the voice is really startling. And Nick Drake just grabbed me by the throat. And it's one of the great sadnesses and frustrations of my life in the music business that I wasn't able to figure out a way to get it across to people in his lifetime. Three records from sundown. Producer Joe Boyd remembers Nick Drake. music scene. He produces the first Pink Floyd single, and he discovers the English folk rock pioneers, the Fairport Convention. But arguably, he makes his greatest find far from the streets of London in Cambridge with Nick Drake. Nick Drake. The English have such funny names for class. I would call him an upper middle class boy, you know. Uh, the upper middle class always call themselves middle class. But, you know, the lower middle class also call themselves middle class. Anyway, he was definitely, he went to a boarding school, he spoke with a very refined accent. Uh, he was part of a kind of uh, gilded youth generation of well-off upper middle class kids. And, you know, he was very talented in music. He started playing the clarinet. He switched to the guitar. His mother played the piano and wrote songs. And years later, I discovered, I heard tapes of his mother. And they're amazing. You know, they have these wonderful chords in the piano. And, and, you know, the style of the song is a bit 
you know, very English, very almost music hall, but upper class music hall, Flanders and Swan, Noel Coward kind of thing. And um, uh, he started playing the guitar and he's just, he was just, I, I don't know where it came from, but he developed a way of reproducing on the guitar the kind of chords that his mother played on the piano. I heard him first because one of the Fairport Convention told me about hearing him at a concert in the Roundhouse. It was a Vietnam protest concert. And um, I followed up the lead and invited him to come in and bring me a tape. And he brought me a tape. And I put it on the end of that day and just immediately knew that this was something completely different. A lot of retuning of strings so that he, he played in very unusual tunings. And his articulation of arpeggios on the guitar and the whole way he used the guitar to underpin his songs is completely unique in my view. I mean, it's, it's so strong and so central and so devoid of solos. I mean, there's nothing about guitar solos in there. It's just a way of orchestrating a song in a complexity that is staggering. Three hours from sundown Jeremy Hoping to keep the sun from his eyes East from the city and down to the cave In search of a master Nick Drake to a deal with his witch season imprint on Island Records. The year is 1968. Drake is 20 years old. But Boyd's new talent is beyond reticent. His memoirs, Boyd writes. In the years to come, I would get used to Nick Drake's way of answering the telephone. He was so shy as a performer when the circumstances were right. And the only the circumstance that I remember most clearly as being right was um, when the Fairport Convention played the Festival Hall and it was very dramatic because they'd had a car accident, the drummer had been killed, and this was a reconfiguration of the group. 
So everybody was in their seats and respectful. Nick came out, didn't say anything, played a song, people applauded, and then spent three minutes without speaking, retuning his guitar. Everybody stayed silent. He played again, everybody gave him a big ovation, he got an encore at the end, and I thought, this is going to work. And then you send him out on his own, you know, and there's a student union full of kids, and there's a bar at the back, and he doesn't say anything, he has no jokes, he has no chat, he just took me to his guitar, it takes quite some time. And he just, in those little intervals between songs, he lost everybody. And um, so he really stopped performing live. And there was no other way in England in those days to really break an artist. The middle days. At this point, all efforts to advance Drake's career would center on the recording studio. Boyd recruits engineer John Wood at Sound Technique Studio in London for Drake's debut album. The record, the record is called Five Leaves Left. The year is 1969. It's difficult to remember that there wasn't really a template for doing this kind of record in those days. To record a singer with strings or with a larger orchestral arrangement, but not in a pop way, you know, with a kind of dryish, intimate sound on the voice and, and doing it in a sort of tasteful way, was not something that had been done much. And We'd already tried one arranger, the guy who worked on the James Taylor record, um, the first James Taylor record, and just hated what he did with Nick's song. just didn't work at all. And, um, and Nick then said, well, I have this friend in Cambridge, Robert Kirby. And I went up to Cambridge to meet Kirby, you know, and I was a bit freaked out because I thought Nick is world class. So we want the best. We want world, the top arranger in London, whoever it is. We'll spend the money. We'll get the guy. And Nick was saying, well, actually, let's try my friend in Cambridge. He's 19 years old, you know. And I think, oh, no, no, I don't, you know. But I went up and met him, and I just liked the way they were together and the way I liked Robert, and he seemed to really, really love Nick and his music. And I just felt, okay, let's, let's just go with this. And so we did this first session, and the first track they did was Way to Blue, which I had never heard because it, he didn't have a way to play it to me, in a way. And I suppose I could have gone down into the room and just listened, but I tended to, you know, let John Wood be the guy running around moving microphones and messing around in the studio, and I sat in the control room. And besides, it was a climb, you know, the control room was upstairs. And, you know, you had to climb all the way down, all the way back up again. So I was just sitting up there reading my paper and listening to the strings rehearse. And you'd hear them, John would focus on one microphone, then another microphone, then another microphone, try to get that in. He'd go downstairs, move the microphone, move the chairs around. And I kept hearing these bits and pieces of this thing, and it just sounded amazing. But I couldn't figure out what it really did sound like. 
And then finally, we got everybody in position, and John got his sound he wanted on every microphone, every part of this six-piece string string ensemble. And and then he just pushed all the faders up, and we listened to this whole thing, and I just, oh my god. Don't you have a word to show what may be done? Have you never heard the way to find the sun? Tell me all that you know. Show me what you have to show. Won't you come and say if you know the way to Have you seen the light? I thought when we made the record, oh my god, the critics are gonna love this. This is so um we're gonna get headlines and you know. Melody Maker said that it was an awkward mixture of folk and cocktail jazz. So, I don't know. It's it was very sad. Show me what you have to show. Tell us all today. If you know the way. sells fewer than 5,000 copies. Boyd is discouraged, but Drake is distraught. Seeking to build on what little momentum exists, Boyd urges Drake back into the studio. This would produce his second record, the album Brighter Later. The year is 1970. One of the things that influenced my, my approach to make a lot was the first Leonard Cohen album which I thought John Simon did a great job of producing. And um, one of the songs I love it was So Long, Marianne. And he has these girls mocking his line, you know, uh, sort of singing behind him, against him, in a kind of contrast in their brassiness to his delicacy. played me Poor Boy. Originally when he played it to me, that chorus line, Oh Poor Boy, So Sorry for Himself, he sang that. And I said, I just had this idea right away, and I just said, Nick, let's get some girl singers to sing that line, and then you answer at the end of that, that, that beginning of the chorus, you, you pick it up at the beginning of the chorus. He kind of looked at me funny, like, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm sure. Okay. So sorry for myself. 
John Wood and I learned recording Nick very quickly that you just turn Nick off in the monitors. Because Nick's performance is always great. You know, you when we would record Nick with strings or rhythm section or, or whatever, um, even if it was out in the room, and when he recorded with strings, he recorded in the room, and it's different from the way people do things today. The tracks like Riverman, that's not an overdubbed string section. You know, that's Nick singing and playing guitar in the room in the middle of the strings. Gonna see the river man. So you're listening very carefully to everybody else. And you go for their performance. If you get a great take from the strings or the brass or the rhythm section or whoever the weakest link is, that's your take. You don't even have to listen to Nick. Then you listen back and you put Nick in and it just sounds fantastic. Because he was always just fine. His, those complicated guitar parts, he never flubbed them. He just never did. Despite critical acclaim, Brighter later sells poorly. Despair, Drake leaves London to move home with his parents in Tamworth and Arden. His behavior is increasingly erratic and reclusive. At his family's urging, Drake seeks psychiatric care. Detail. Around the same time, Boyd leaves London for California, where he accepts a job in the film industry. Nick Drake has a, a kind of reputation as a very solitary, lonely figure. What was it like? At odds with was the person you knew? Yeah, I mean, he was soft-spoken. He was hesitant, um, but he was—he knew what he liked, and he was had very good ideas. And he worked very closely with Robert Kirby, and uh, it was incredible fun to work in the studio with Nick, just because the material you're working with is so great, and the fact that it's not. A self-contained group. You got to go out and put a group together to make these records, one track at a time. The end days. In 1972, Drake records his third and final album, Pink Moon. The record consists mostly of just voice and guitar, and Drake does not ask Boyd to participate. Pink Moon sells fewer copies than even its predecessors. Soon thereafter, Drake suffers a mental breakdown and is hospitalized. Following his release, Drake and Boyd agree to begin work on a new album. That album 
sells his label stake in Island Records. One of his parting conditions is that Drake's recordings never go out of print. Never? Never. A second detail. After his death, Drake's recordings begin to find an audience. Fans make pilgrimages to the Drake family home in Tamworth and Arden. Drake's parents, Rodney and Molly, touched by the interest in their son, invite these visitors in and allow them to copy cassettes and home recordings of Drake's music. Over time, the Drake legend spreads. A combination of word of mouth and tape to 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 tape. Is it surprising to you how popular Nick Drake's music has become kind of after his death and um, sort of a cult that sprung up around him. No, I mean, um, I always thought he should be that popular. And my view was what took everybody so long. It's such a shame that people didn't recognize it in his lifetime. But, uh, you know, there it is, the music is there. When you deem me so high when you deem me so high when you deem me so high you know I don't know how to deal with questions like was it ahead of its time because I don't I don't think so it was very much you know it happened in that time and it was a set of influences that you know but I do think that uh, in a way, its failure at the time has been part of its success now in the sense that very few people, grow, you know, growing up in the 80s, they didn't have parents who were playing Nick Drake to death at them. You know, there's no films from the 60s with girls dancing around with flowers in their hair with Nick Drake as the soundtrack. I mean, it's not identified with that period. It is culturally um, unanchored. So um, it's free to be 
adapted and embraced by people from other generations and people, you know, who just come upon it. And they... It doesn't sort of say that I am from the 60s. You know, it just says I'm Nick Drake. Please give me second grace. Records from Sundown, produced by Charles Maines for Podstancia, a podcast from the Foundation for Independent Radio Broadcasting in Moscow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Make yourself heard. Say it loud. Call us, write us, send us some sound. 
Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. A little book was given to me And every page spelled liberty And the pilgrims call it the tree of life. Oh, my child's Lord, soon be over. But it's too late, my friend. Too late, but never Sun Ra is synonymous with far-out philosophies, experimental music, great talent, and cosmic costumes. From big band and bebop to avant-garde and disco, with stops everywhere in between, Sun Ra was a musician of great breadth as well as a band leader, keyboardist, visionary philosopher, and entertainer extraordinaire. His vision was truly worldly and out of this world. In fact, Sun Ra's was one of the original abduction stories, as he claimed he'd been taken to Saturn, and later claimed that he was indeed from Saturn. After that, he never again recognized his Alabama origins. Here's a profile of Sun Ra from our friends at The Night Air from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. At first, nothing is. I came from somewhere else where I was part of something that is so wonderful. Music of the outer darkness is the music of the void. Opening is the void, and the opening is the beginning. Prepare for the journey. That a voice from another dimension will speak to Earth. The night air with sunrise burning bright. When the world was in darkness. And darkness was ignorance, along came wrong. When the world was in darkness, 
And darkness was ignorance. Along came Ra. The Sun Man Speaks. I have many names. Names of mystery. Names of splendor. Names of shame. I have many names. Some call me Mr. Ra. Others call me Mystery. You can call me Mr. Mystery. How do you begin to approach someone as complicated as Sun Ra? Maybe you just accept the Sun Man's warming rays. As Sun Ra said, Everything is here. In my music, there's a lot of melodies going on. It's like an ocean of sound. The ocean comes up, it goes back. It rolls. My music always rolls. According to some sources, Sun Ra was born on May 22, 1914, in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham was also known as the Magic City. His name was Herman Poole Blunt. He was named after a famous magician. His friends called him Sonny. He was a Gemini. He moved to Chicago in 1946 to escape restrictions of the segregated South, but not until he established the very best swing band in Birmingham, Alabama. Sun Ra actually was much older than his group. He used to actually play second piano with Fletcher Henderson, you know, who's a swing, the inventor of the, of the big swing band. When Fletcher would be, you know, conducting the band, standing up, Sun Ra would be playing the piano. So that puts him all the way back in the 20s and the 30s, you see. He came from Birmingham, Alabama, up to Chicago, and 
put together a band of his own there, which was a small group, and he found somebody who would issue those records for him. So for a whole lot of years, Sun Ra was coming out of Chicago with his own produced records. The newest sounds to come along in contemporary jazz are written by the composer-arranger the Sun Ra out of Chicago. The Sun Ra, among other things, fuses the snake-like bebop melodies with colors of Duke Ellington and the experimental changes of Theolonius Monk. The Sun Ra says of his music that it is a portrayal of everything the Negro really was, is, and is going to be, with emphasis focused on the Negro's triumph over the demonic currents of his experience. In Chicago, he played in R&B bands, rehearsal groups, vaudeville, in strip joints, and in Fletcher Henderson's band. Eventually, he fell in with a group of intellectuals committed to researching the ancient history of black people and to consider radical alternative futures in the coming space age. They called themselves Infinity Inc. and helped finance his band and his record label. It was around this time that Sonny Blunt, under guidance from the creator, and to connect with cosmology and immortality and the universe, changed his name to Leroy Sunia Ra, abbreviated to Sun Ra as his registered business name. And what was Sun Ra's business? Nothing less than to change the world. At football games, they holler my name, Ra, 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 because they want victory. Ra is older than history itself. The Sun Man, the Sun Man speaks. Now, I was just like everybody else when I first came on this planet. I didn't know anything, completely ignorant. As I look back over my childhood, I'm amazed at how ignorant I was. But it's a good thing I was because then I didn't accept anything as being the truth. He was interested in and influenced by the Bible, by Africa, by Egyptology, by the Freemasons, by the Baptist Church, by the sounds of nature, by science fiction, by the Kabbalah, by the histories and sounds of words, by countless obscure philosophical texts, by space flight, by conversations, by dance, by poetry, by the universe, by the omniverse. According to Sun Ra, he was born on Saturn. I was reading in the paper the other day that they'd found out that one of the moons of Saturn is a base for UFOs, you see. So the truth is finally coming out. I've been talking about Saturn for years. I don't remember ever having been there, but I'm sure I'm a citizen of Saturn. From the endless space of Cosmo Void, Ra shines in the night air.
See, I mean, sometimes when somebody comes out very weird, you think, well, they're just doing that to be weird. Well, yeah, he was doing that to be weird because he was weird. See, there was no falsity in Sunrise. You might believe what he was saying was false or was ungrounded, but it was not because he thought it was false. And then he had this discussion with this German journalist, and the journalist thought he was being, I guess he thought he was being uh, aggressive. And he said, uh, Sun Ra, tell the truth. Oh, you've never been to Saturn. Tell the truth. And he said, right, I've never been to Saturn, but I was at Jupiter. So, I mean, it was not, it wasn't a factor of him trying to put you on. He was trying to tell you something about his own understanding of the world, you know, that, uh, that the world is not limited to Earth, you know, that there's life in all kinds of dimensions throughout the universe. And that's what he was talking about. I am dealing outside the conventional wisdom. I want to explore the ultra dimensions of being. We must move beyond life and death, considering they are not essential in the universe. I know more about other regions than this planet. No two songs tell the same story. They say that history repeats itself. But history is only his story. You haven't heard my story yet. The writers, Philip Saunders Aratia and Andrew Johnson, note that Sun Ra's sense of history blended with a mystical futurism that optimistically embraced the promise of outer space, space travel, and the existence of beings from other planets. By insisting that the past was something that African Americans could be inspired by and proud of, and that the future offers hope and promise to those who are open to it, he sought to transcend racism. He wanted to make music that was truly spiritual, that lifted people. Of course, there's nothing higher than space, so that's where he aimed.
if they keep listening to my music, they'll be energized. They go home, and maybe 15 years later, they'll say, wow, that music I heard 15 years ago in the park, it was beautiful. From 1951 onwards, Sun Ra pulled together his own big band. Although he concentrated on swing, no genre was off limits. Jazz, pop, and R&B, even Hollywood soundtracks all found their way into Ra's compositions. Gradually, as his philosophies developed, with a growing aim to achieve the impossible, Sun Ra expanded the use of dissonance modal arrangements, and free improvisation within disciplined ensemble play. Every place there is music, chaos is music, and harmonious peace is music. Silence is music. There's different kinds of silences. Each silence is a world of its own. He incorporated the use of new technology, including some of the first synthesizers, dancers, color organs, log drums, space robes, and an endlessly evolving series of rituals. kind of mystical figure, you know, they had developed these various kinds of band uniforms they wore that were kind of a, a departure from the ordinary, you know, he began to pick up on the whole space kind of language, talking about outer space and that his music had to do with opening people's minds. in the early 60s and he began to be you know to function in that scene because it was a very rich scene you know a lot of the young groups came were coming in there Ornette Coleman 
Pharaoh Saunders, uh, Albert Isler. There was a lot of, a lot of young, fresh musicians coming in there playing, and so somehow I was part of that. So we were in the same kind of, you know, the same kind of milieu, the same kind of scene, and so we not only met each other and talked, but began to, I think, appreciate what each was trying to do. And we would talk about, you know, the nature of, of the universe, actually, the, what was happening on the planet as far as the civil rights movement and people's minds and what was happening with the arts. You know, it was really um, theoretical, you know, uh, theoretical, political, spiritual, aesthetic conversations. I do not come to you as the reality. I come to you as the myth, because that's what black people are, myths. <laughs> I really prefer mythocracy to democracy. Before history, anything before history is a myth. That's where black people are. Reality equals death because everything that is real has a beginning and an end. Myth speaks of the impossible, of immortality. And since everything that's possible has been tried, we need to try the impossible. Me and Time never got along so good. We just sort of ignored each other. Right up to the 90s, Sun Ra never did anything in the right chronology. He started with jazz, went to rhythm and blues, and then to doo-wop. He'd go back to pre-jazz, and then back to early swing, and then disco. He was anachronistic, always playing music out of time, because he was all about space. Somewhere else on the other side of nowhere, there's another place in space beyond what you know as time, where the gods of mythology dwell, a magic world that makes things to be. These gods can even offer you immortality. somewhere else, but the creator's voice reached me through the maze and darkness of human existence. I came from somewhere else. I was part of something. He was always projecting his music into the future. Sun Ra released more than 200 records in a career of over 40 years. His big band continues into the 21st century. It was variously called the orchestra, the solar orchestra, 
the Astro Infinity Orchestra, the Myth Science Orchestra, the Love Adventure Orchestra, the Omniverse Orchestra, and dozens of other names. He was an African-American romantic. His goal was a collective, metaphysical experience. He was named after a famous magician. His friends called him Sonny. He passed onto another plane in 1993. To Mr. Ra, rest in space. I'm not part of history. I'm more part of the mystery, which is my story. In the other worlds of Sun Ra, you heard the voices of Aku Kadogo, Calvin Welch, writer Amiri Baraka, and the Sun Man himself. There were also excerpts from the excellent 1981 Ra doco, A Joyful Noise and the philosophical sci-fi exploitation feature, made in 1974 and starring Sun Ra. Space is the place. The Other Worlds of Sun Ra, produced by Brent Clough and John Jacobs for The Night Air on the ABC's Radio National. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. Learning to see through listening. That's a kind of beauty almost greater than any, I think. Before we go, an invitation. Come join me, Gwen Maxi, and the rest of the Third Coast staff as we celebrate the best audio stories of the year at the Third Coast Award Ceremony on Sunday, October 7th. The ceremony will be hosted by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, and feature not just one, but two live bands and all sorts of other hoopla and surprises. You'll have a chance to mingle with the winning producers, drink a little bubbly, enjoy some tasty hors d'oeuvres, and celebrate radio with its greatest fans and greatest makers. It's all happening Sunday, October 7th from 6.30 to 9.30 at the Norris University Center on Northwestern's campus in Evanston. It's the only time you'll ever see that many public radio producers look that good. For tickets and more information, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also get a sneak preview of the winning stories. Hope to see you there. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. 
Support for ReSound also comes from Kate Joyce, devoted to documentary and architectural photography, specializing in commissions, multimedia collaborations, and limited edition prints, with an installation currently on view at RTKL Chicago Gallery at 200 South Michigan Avenue. More at www.kate-joyce.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.